Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for people experiencing a mental health crisis. Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. I am your host, Travis Atkinson, and I am so glad that you are here. In this podcast, I am digging into the nuts and bolts of behavioral health crisis services in the United States, and I do that by interviewing the people that work in and around these crisis systems. In this episode, I interview Jessica Pirro. Jessica is the Executive Director of Crisis Services a nonprofit mental health organization based in Buffalo, New York. Crisis Services operates a county mental health crisis hotline, a statewide prison rape crisis line, a mobile crisis response team, and a domestic violence and sexual assault response team. Their mental health crisis hotline is one of 700 crisis call centers in the United States, and their prison rape hotline was one of the first 10 hotlines of its kind. During our conversation, we talked about Jessica's journey into crisis services and her current role as executive director, as well as what keeps her motivated to do more than the minimum, her recent battle with cancer, and the state of domestic violence prevention in our country. Here is episode two of the Crisis Podcast, Jessica Pirro. Jessica Pirro, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here today. The first question I want to ask is, how did you get into the work that you do in crisis services? Well, I really started, I think, kind of thinking back to when I was a teenager, was I tended to be, and I think a lot of us say this, but tended to be the person that would support my friends when they were going through hard times. Um, And just thinking about when I saw something that was difficult or even just news that I observed as a younger person, like understanding and trying to understand what caused it, you know, the reasons behind it, how to make it better. So I think part of it was just kind of an innate want and need to help other people. I also grew up in a family where my family were public servants and volunteered. And so I think that that was kind of part of those pieces I grew up with. But with that, it kind of drew me then to get more involved in this work and schooling around social work. I actually started in business. That was my degree. I started as, a, as actually a consumer studies major when I was going to school because I was really interested in more like from a business perspective. And then uh, as I started taking classes, I realized this is not fitting me for wanting to give back and help in a different way. And so I kind of shifted to a social work focus. And that really just met a a need of purpose, which I think is what I was looking for. What were those public service jobs that your family members had? Well, my um, my mother was a teacher, so she came from you know I, from an education background. But my father was actually a, a local uh, politician where I grew up in Syracuse, New York. He was a town supervisor and then a county legislator and then um, was the county executive for several years. But he grew up in a family of uh, individuals who volunteered their time in the neighborhood and in the community and our church. So it just was part of who our family was. 
you said that you were a person that like your friends would would turn to or, or come to. H- had you developed empathy at an age that people recognized that and they came to you, or like why do you think that was? Why did why did you serve that role or function am- amongst your friends? One of my best friends, she would always kind of say, you know, my father always says, you're the level-headed one. Like, you're the one that you can go to and you, you can hear us and you would, and then respond. Like, you're you're not reactive. You're not dramatizing the situation, especially in our teen years. That can be an easy thing to do. But I think it was just because I would kind of sit, listen, observe, and then offer thoughts when I felt they were relevant and had purpose. So I think that it was that I I. I I think at the time, maybe not using the word or understanding empathy is what it was, but I do feel like that's what I offered to people was just a calm presence and just a willingness to kind of hear what was going on and then offering support or guidance or just to be present with somebody who might be, you know, having a difficult time. I just want to give a clarifying statement that the organization that you're the executive director of is called Crisis Services, but um, there's also going to maybe be some lowercase crisis services references, (laughs) so we'll try to distinguish those for our listeners as best we can. What was your, your first foray or your first exposure into behavioral health crisis services? When I was in college, actually, one of my first internships was with the Domestic Violence Shelter in Syracuse, New York, and working with survivors as they came into shelter, helping them get the support that they needed, working with the children who came with them. So I was present at various hours of the day and night at the shelter to intake people who were in need of the shelter services as an intern. And that, I think, really exposed me right up front to all walks of life, specifically around domestic violence, coming into the the shelter from a mom, you know, a single mom with a few kids to somebody who's been married for 45 years and finally made the decision to leave. So I think it really kind of right off the bat educated me about regardless of age or life experience, this issue impacted anyone and everyone and and help me get more understanding of um, being present with them um, at the time that they came in seeking safety and support from the violence they were experiencing. So that internship, I think, really sprung me into crisis work. I did some other type of work after that with pregnant and parenting teens and doing intensive case management and support and at times dealing with all types of crisis situations they might be dealing with for themselves and their children. But I think the immediate crisis work kind of started with that internship and, and stuck with me. College can certainly be a time where you get a chance to be selfish or maybe like the epitome of, of, of a me world. Did this internship rock you or did it affect you in, in a way that Uh, was different than how your friends were being influenced or affected? And did that direct the rest of your career or did that send you in in a different direction than maybe you were headed before that? Yes, it did change my path. I think when I switched from my business focus to, to social work, it was actually actually child and family studies when my undergraduate degree, I thought I would be a therapist. You know, I was anticipating having my own practice and, you know, that I think a lot of us, when we start this work, that's what we think. And then I realized that wasn't 
like that type of day-to-day wasn't something that I thrived on because of the internship experience. I think that unknown of when somebody was coming in for an intake or what the needs of the family were or to be able to troubleshoot and problem solve in a moment's notice with people um, was something that I did enjoy as part of that internship. I think it, it kind of struck a chord with me. But I also remember vividly remember a conversation with one of the residents that you know I had with her who was much older than me at the time. I mean, here I was like close to 20 at the time when I was starting this. And here, you know, this woman had been married for several years. Her kids were grown. She had a, you know, a career. And, and, you know, you sit there and you wonder, what can I offer to this person other than a sense of support and also reassuring safety, especially for someone who was dealing with domestic violence. And I remember vividly a conversation I had with her is like, I just hope that I can plant these seeds with you. I don't know what will work for you. I just want to offer you this information to help you know what you deserve and what um, you don't need to have to put up with anymore or, or continue to deal with anymore. And I remember said, I just hope I can plant some seeds with you. That's really what I'm hoping. And that was something important to her. She's like, you know, you were looking at me and offering me something just for me versus she's been dealing with such an abusive relationship for so long that no one ever really focused on her. So I think that that relationship and that conversation at that moment was kind of pivotal for her, but also for me in the sense that I was offering her something that no one else really had taken the time to offer to her before. Mm-hmm. And so I think in that moment, it made me realize too, regardless of my own age or experience, which I know when we start off in this field, that can be a little bit of a, the confidence level can really be a challenge. I think it kind of struck for me that I have something to offer, even if it's a different way to think about something or just information you maybe you weren't ever exposed to before, that regardless of age or experience, those things can, can make a difference in another person. What really sticks out to me in that story is that this woman gave you a chance to affect her or influence her. I certainly remember times in my career early on where I would be blown off because of my age. Yes. Right. And and you're coming in, you're not, you know, you're not coming in with a survivor story or you're not coming in with decades and decades of marital or, or parenting experience, but you're just coming in as a person and just wanting to be supportive and empathic. And that woman opened up to what you had to say, and that was what allowed her to be affected by that. Absolutely. The early years of a career are tough because you do (laughs) question yourself, your confidence, like what can I do, especially for people that are at different ages or even just different cultures and backgrounds. Like you you don't want to come in like I'm telling you to do this. It's Uh just that I'm offering you options to consider and to be informed as best as you can to make the right decisions for yourself. Do you think people who are in crisis lower their guard down a little bit and are more open to the help or do they follow the same biases that any of us do where we say like, well, you don't look like me or you you haven't had the same experiences as me. I'm just curious, you know, whether it was in that internship or since then, if you've noticed people's openness to support maybe doesn't matter as much about demographics or experience when they're in crisis. That's a great question. I think that if you're kind of going back to the, the component about empathy, I think if, if somebody is coming to you and you just truly share, you really start that interaction in a very empathetic way that you're just there for them, that you're just there to listen to them, that you want to hear what they need, you know, versus me telling you what you should do or what yeah. you need. Yeah. I think 
when that happens, then people's guards do come down, that they realize that you are present and you're listening. And I think that for crisis work, that's, you know, the way we approach things is like, tell me, tell me what you need today. Tell me what's going on. You know, we're engaging that person to, into the conversation versus just saying, okay, you need to call here or you need to do this. Like we're really listening. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the component that gets missed sometimes in conversations where people might, where there might be breakdowns because of maybe views that if it's age or if it's race or other cultural issues that might become barriers because you're not listening. You're not being present. You're not hearing what that person is saying. You're just kind of scripting back, you know? And I think that for us in this work, we have to just stop and listen and hear what that person's saying in order to really engage them to be successful. And that's such a gift to be able to give someone just your time and your full attention that they might not be receiving in other places. Often in crisis programs that I've worked in, we would look at readmission rates and we look at people that were coming in. And I didn't always look at readmission as like a bad thing because they had found like a refuge in a, in a place where they were listened to, where they were called by the name that they prefer, where they were acknowledged, where they were thanked or high-fived or treated with respect and dignity. And that was that was unusual mm-hmm. for them. And so they were naturally gravitating towards the place where they received that, you know, and I thought that was just not something that we should discount, but that we should say, Hey, how can we get more of that in this person's life and not just say, what, what are you doing back here? Why did you call again? Or why did you return to the program? Right. Yeah. Not questioning people's motives. Right. Okay. So you have some of these memorable experiences in your internship. How do you get to that part of your career where you come on here to crisis services? So I think the experience in the domestic violence shelter definitely was the first taste of that crisis type of work. And I think that that definitely stuck with me. I think I actually moved from Syracuse to Buffalo, New York, where I am now, and did a couple other jobs in the meantime until I found crisis services, the agency. Okay. (laughs) Um, Capital C, capital S. Yeah, capital C, capital S. So... I did some other work that were, was more like program development work, which is also a very strong interest of mine as well. And then I got to learn about crisis services and being new to the community. There's a lot of agencies and services here, but it was trying to find something that was mission-driven and purpose and kind of getting back to, like, for me, it's about purpose. It's like, my, what's my purpose being here to, to do this work? What's my purpose on this earth to begin with? Like, I'm supposed to be here to be doing something to help. And, and that is what dro- drove me here to crisis services because of the mission. And that's what's kept me here for over 20 years. So, yeah. but I think what, you know, when I first started here, I, you know, I had worked in, uh, I started in one of our departments, which is our advocate department that dealt with domestic violence sexual assault and elder abuse. Now, I had no exposure to rape and sexual assault work or other things. So there's a lot I needed to learn. Definitely some things that were transferable from the domestic violence world, but different. So I just found it intriguing about systems response to individuals in crisis and trauma and and then expanding our mental health work and our suicide prevention work and my different roles here. I've learned so much, but it does get into a, kind of a baseline of just being there with people in their darkest moments, regardless of what the impact of the issue is that they're dealing with. And that's what's kept me here and kind of brought me here. And that that experience doesn't frighten you or scare you to 
to walk in when everyone else is walking out. No. No? <laughs> I'll walk in anytime. All right. I tend to be that person, I think. I think, you uh-huh. know, it's like if something's going on, it's like, okay, what's going on? You know, what can I do to help? I don't shy away from those types of things. You came into the advocate program and now you're the executive director. How did, how did that happen over, <laughs> over the, you said 20 years? 20 Is years. Right? Yeah. So I was with our advocate department for about eight years in a couple roles, a supervisor role, and then moved into their coordinator role, uh, like the director role of the department. And then our associate director position here so the second in command for our organization, that position opened up and, you know, I went for it. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was at the point, you know, a few years in now and also just very interested in learning more on the mental health side of our work and the suicide prevention side, but also that clinical support for our team in a different way is really what that position kind of provided for our organization. And then I was promoted into that position and was in that role for about almost eight years as well. And then just about five years ago, it was appointed into the CEO role when this position became available. So kind of a succession plan, I guess, like kind of moving from role to role and kind of building and developing, but really taking the grounding of my advocacy and commitment and really trying to problem solve and figure out the best ways for people in crisis, um, how to navigate systems that they're faced with that they didn't ask to be faced with. I say people don't choose us. <laughs> they don't come to us by choice. You know, a lot of times it's because something has happened to them um, or has been, you know, the crisis results in them needing us. So just really trying to make it easier for the next person, whatever their crisis might be, to be able to know that we're here. We have a lot of people in our community that know of us, but we have a lot of people that don't. And, and that's one of my goals in this role is to make sure that people anywhere in this world, you know, Mm -hmm. know that there's a crisis line, that there's a crisis center in your community. And that's the go-to place to call, make that first call to get the help that they might need. Tell me about the services that you offer here at Crisis Services. You mentioned that the advocate program that you worked in, but what else do you offer? We're the 24-hour crisis center for our community. Um, So we have our 24-hour crisis hotline that provides support for all types of crisis. But, you know, when our agency started, it was specifically for suicide and suicide prevention work. So that's still a big core part of our mission. But we get calls all all types of crisis situations that our counselors are managing. We also um, do some specialty lines for our area obviously for rape crisis hotline, as well as the domestic violence hotline. We also, on our hotline work, partner with other providers in the community to do after hours coverage for many of the mental health clinics and providers in the community to support their clients after hours, weekends, holidays, being that we're the 24-hour entity in the community. And we also have a couple statewide hotlines that we manage for New York. So the New York State Domestic and Sexual Violence Hotline. And this past year, in partnership with that state hotline, started the PREA hotline, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act hotline. So it's allowing inmates in our area to be able to call and speak to a, a confidential rape crisis advocate through the hotline. So that PREA hotline, it just started up this past year, which has broadened us to a very different population of survivors throughout New York State. And I've heard that that is one of the first 10 or so in the country. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So we're, we're learning together with the other PREA lines in the, in the country. 
of how to manage those reports, but also reports of other issues that might be going on in the facilities and some things like that. So it's definitely been uh, a growth and learning curve for us um, in doing that work. So one of seven to 10 PREA hotlines, I'm, I'm sure there's hundreds of crisis call centers across the country. How do you stay sharp? How do you keep attuned to what other people are doing so that you can, whether it's share your, your wisdom and insight or get some from, from peers, like how do you do that either at a local level or at a national level? Well, locally, we have some great partnerships with our other hotlines in our neighboring counties. So we work closely with them too, because there might be clients that we deal with here in our county that also then move to other counties or vice versa. One of the other hotlines we do manage is for our neighboring county. So we manage their mental health crisis hotline for Chautauqua County, which is one of our neighboring counties as well. So a little bit of a regional impact. So we have a lot of ongoing conversations with some of the other crisis centers in our Western New York area. But being a part of also the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network, uh, we're the network center for Western New York. So that partnership um, has exposed us to the different centers throughout the, the country to learn from and reach out to. And we're also a member of NASCOD, <laughs> the National Association of Crisis Organization Directors. And I actually just was appointed to their board this year, which is very exciting. So just those relationships that we've been able to build through those national entities at any point in time, picking up the phone, sending someone an email, I need help with this, or you, I learned that you guys are doing this, you know, and sharing that wisdom and, and just their experience, their strengths, their challenges, their mistakes, <laughs> you know, has been a great asset. And I think it's something that for crisis organizations across the country is really unique. I, I mean, I feel like you, you just can relate to each other, but you support each other at the same time, um, especially when you're trying to get help on a project or uh, an initiative. People are so willing to do that because we're all ultimately all working towards the same purpose. So I think keeping sharp and keeping aware of what's going on is really learning <laughs> from other people, always learning about what's the best approach um, to really help the you know, people in crisis. I heard a quote somewhere that connection breeds hope. And I imagine that when you have other peers around the country that are doing what you do, even though it can't take away from the fact that the work is hard, it feels like there's, there's a chance you can do it a little bit better or that, you know, it, it's not as, um, as dire as maybe some of the circumstances that, that people are coming in with, that, that you yeah. can have a, a feeling of, of overcoming that. Now, this is something that fascinates me about it. Any, any giving soul is that I imagine you stay pretty busy as an executive director <laughs> yes. uh, of, a, of a crisis organization. But now come to find out you're also a, a board member uh, with NASCOT. <laughs> and so I guess you, it would probably re be really easy for you to say, I do enough at work, you know, that I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working my tail off and I, I, you know, I would like to relax, but I imagine this is something that's above and beyond that maybe could create competing priorities mm -hmm. in, in your, in your day and your work day. Where does that come from? Your desire to, you know, give of yourself. I imagine it's a service minded position, but you must have some kind of like abundant energy or, or life source to, <laughs> to draw from to, to continue to, to do more than just the minimum or more than just yeah. what's expected. Well, I think that's what I get my drive from is, really? is projects and initiatives. Like I'm so, I, I love problem solving. I love trying to figure things out. I love trying to obviously, especially like systems work, like looking at it and saying, okay, 
what has worked well, what could we do different, what can we try and then try again. I I think that the the involvement with things like NASCOT or you know locally, I, it was funny because my staff were just talking, a couple of my staff were talking about this the other day, is I'm also the chair of our Suicide Prevention Coalition. I'm also a vice chair of our Anti-Stigma Coalition. And somebody had just recently reached out to me to potentially join another board. And they're like, how do you do that? And, <laughs> and why do you do that? You know, it's kind of that same question. But it just intrigues me to be able to help and hopefully offer something to another group or another organization or, you know, just the community to make it better, you know? And again, it gets back to purpose. I feel like, what's my purpose? If I'm here to help do this, I love working. I mean, I'm one of those people. Yeah. My husband laughs at me, <laughs> like, you got to take a break now, you know? <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's what drives me. You know, I know when I need to take a break. I know when I need to um, sometimes probably should have done it a little sooner than maybe the decision of when I make that the decision to take a break. But that's how my mind works is like always trying to think of how to make things better for anyone who's around me. If it's my family, if it's um, my pets, if it's whatever it is, is just caring, compassion, I guess, to help other people. I think one challenge for people who work in crisis in, in the behavioral health crisis industry is that they either don't know about these opportunities to connect with peers or they don't know how to engage. What would your advice be? You know, maybe think back to the first time that you joined a committee of a trade association or you joined a, a board. What advice would you give to people who are not doing that yet, but it might be a value add to their career as well as just to their life to to give back in that way. What would be like a good first step towards uh, getting more engaged on uh, beyond just the job that they do? Well, I think my first entree into that, though, I think was because of work, of the work. So I think for our organization here, because of our partnerships with so many different disciplines to do the work that we do, there are different committees and different task force that exist. So being encouraged to participate in those was something right off the bat when I first started working here to be involved in our local, like, for example, the Domestic Violence Coalition and other things. And then from there, kind of breeds those other opportunities to learn about, oh, there's a state association, oh, there's a national group, or, you know, you, then you learn about what actually are some other opportunities that you could consider or be considered for. I think that because of that I think community-focused work that we do and also collaborative work that we do, that committee work and those coalitions and task force are just part of who we are here in our agency. So I think I was fortunate to be given that opportunity. Not every place can do that. So I think for people who are interested in getting involved at more of that community level is to try to learn either from their colleagues or just even just doing searches to find out, you know, what are some local initiatives that either you could volunteer for or could be incorporated as part of your role in your organization. It also helps you build relationships you never would have probably built before with maybe other disciplines or also just learning about, you know, different roles in, in response to the work that we do. So I don't know if that 100% answers the question yeah. in the way that you asked it, but I think that I was fortunate, I think, for the work that I've done in my career that I was encouraged to participate in community efforts as part of our work here. I know, you know, like I said, not every agency has the luxury maybe to do that, 
that's what then got me to learn about, okay, there's these other efforts um, either to serve as a board member um, as well as other local nonprofits here in our community that I've served on boards for as well because I just, you know, wanted to help bring my knowledge of what I know as a nonprofit leader, you know, to help those other groups. So what is the most challenging part of your job? <sighs> Time. <laughs> I think, Time. Uh, I think um, for me as a CEO, I think it's, is I'm always having to think about not only the care of our team, and the service that we provide, which is, is, is our whole, our whole being, but then managing a business, you know, so kind of, I laugh about it sometimes. I started as a business major and, you know, although I went to social work, I ended up, you know, kind of dealing with a business and, you know, we, in this role, you are running a business. Um, you're running not only your staff and the support that they need, but your financials and, and all that goes with that. And I think for nonprofit leaders, then it's also your board of directors and working with your board and all the compliance components and governances that are required with that. So I think, I think the challenge is just trying to keep all of those pieces afloat at the same time because it is all needed in order for us to, to move our mission forward. But sometimes it is a bit of a competing demand for time and also uh, managing the work differently than how we manage a crisis. Um, I think that's one of the challenges for crisis centers is, you know, we, we're good at crisis response, and but not from an administrative side, that's not how you have to operate. And sometimes it's hard to shift. So, you know, I shared like moving, we had a motto of like moving from crisis management to managing a crisis center is something that I strive for every day because it's also really putting into context what's a real priority and what's a real emergency (laughs) versus, you know, what are the other things that you just, you need to keep going and keep working on because it's required for the success of your organization or your business. So I think it's always massaging that with my team and kind of clarifying that. And also just trying to continue to keep the organization in the forefront of the community is, is something that is, you know, we have some good successes with, but then it can be some challenges at the same time. I notice sometimes some irony in, in behavioral health crisis services that the people that we're serving, we can sometimes resemble if we're not protecting ourselves or if we're all in for the mission at the expense of our, of our own, you know, well-being or self-care or whatever. I guess I'm just curious, how have you preserved your mental health amidst the workplace challenges or, you know, just job responsibility challenges? Or have there been times where you feel like your mental health has been compromised in the work that you're doing? And and what was that like? That's a great point. I think that we're in this field, we're constantly exposed to trauma. Hearing stories of trauma, hearing and experiencing, um, witnessing people who've just been impacted by a trauma, it's going to have an impact on you if you're an empathetic person, right? Um, So it's putting into a little bit of a perspective and maybe it's more of how I've learned to cope is like really understanding, okay, my purpose here is to help them and be present with them, um, but also being conscious of how I'm responding to the situation and when I might need support to be brought in or or a handoff to yeah. not deal with it. So I'm thinking back to even when I first started in this work, 
how it made me feel. So if I was feeling anxious or other things like, okay, why was that? Was it because of what I was witnessing and, and did I need to take a break or did I need to consider pulling in a teammate to help with something? I was very conscious of myself. So I think for me, that's something that I've always been kind of in tune with. I think sometimes you can burn out when you're not paying attention to how you're responding to things because sometimes it's, you know, you can deny how you're feeling and it's easy to do that. But I think it's just really being conscious of how I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, when I'm de- whatever what I'm dealing with and being present in that moment to acknowledge that. I also know that I need to take care of myself. Like this is difficult work. It's a demanding job, but I also have extreme luck of the family and friends that I have that are there for me when I need that. That's one of the things I always think about is somebody's going through a hard time. I have my husband to turn to or my son or my parents and can just talk without reservation. You know, yeah. not everybody has that. So I realize that that's, we serve that for a lot of people in this, in this work. And so just honoring the fact that I have that with my family and being able to release and know when I need to take a break or just process through, you know, a challenge or a difficult day is, is truly a blessing, I think, for, you know, to be able to continue to do this work as long as, as I have. And also to just be able to talk with other people in the field so you don't feel so alone <laughs> sometimes in how you're feeling about this work. I think that's been helpful as well. I think we met at the Crisis Call Center Conference in Phoenix, maybe like three or four years ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah. I remembered you from then, but what struck me was a year or two after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are a cancer survivor. Yes. And the 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 year that I discovered that, you were um, battling cancer, <laughs> opening up a new crisis program, and then uh, being like the host site for the crisis call center <laughs> conference. Just throw it all together in one year. Yes. Um, I know you like work and you like challenges, but um, I was particularly amazed at how you made it through that sequence. Walk us through what what that season of your life was like. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer in January of 2017. And I remember, you know, obviously getting that diagnosis and, you know, just dealing with that. And, you know, a couple of weeks went by and I was sitting in, in my kitchen table and my husband, my husband, my lovely husband was cooking dinner. And I remember just sitting there and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And he just looked at me. I'm like, this year of all years, right? Because we already had the move plan. I think I already knew that that conference was being hosted in Buffalo and like all these things. I was like, really? Really? We got all this stuff so going you on. you framed it as a, a, a significant inconvenience. <laughs> it was an okay. inconvenience. Cancer is an inconvenience. But um, so to put it in that perspective, you know, and he kind of laughed and he says, oh, you're going to, we're going to be okay. Like, you know, I think it's, we're going to go through this together. And I think, I think for us, it was um, realizing that there's going to be, uh, I'm trying to, my, my husband had a perfect way of framing it. It was, there's going to be a lot of bad days, but there's also going to be a lot of good days still. And we need to cherish those good days, even though there's going to be more bad days than maybe we're, we're used to because of having to go through surgery and then chemo and then radiation. So just kind of trying to keep that perspective so it didn't consume us because it can easily consume you <laughs> um, when you're diagnosed with cancer um, because you become a patient, you know, you're at appointment after appointment and that's all you can think about. So it's a different different lifestyle of, of that experience. 
it's interesting that year. I have some of, some of my colleagues and and you know friends here were worried. You know, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. But for me, it was to be able to keep going. You know, I think when you're faced with a challenging time, it can it can either like just completely shut you down, or you can just take it and say, okay, how do I incorporate this into my life instead of having it take over my life? So, I think you know that year. Would I do that again? I don't know. <laughs> Thinking back now, um, but it was what I needed at that day and that time and that year, and I got through it. Yeah. You know, um, and I'll be you know three years, you know, survivor um, since. So, amen. amen. That's awesome. So you've talked about your purpose a little bit on this cast, and I'm wondering how that experience influenced your purpose. Did it clarify it? Did it strengthen it? Did it? bring it into question, like what were you going through mentally as you thought, as you put that, that experience into context of what you had done on earth up to that point? Yeah. Well, I think it, it just, it, it forces you to pause and reflect that life is short. I was fortunate. Not everybody is, mm-hmm. especially when you're given some sort of a diagnosis like that. So I think taking pause that, you know, to be more present for yourself too. So for example, you know, being more spontaneous to do things, you know, you know, um, take trips, you know, do the things that you, instead of saying, oh, we'll get to that. waiting to live. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting to being present. And I think that's one of the things that, that, you know, I say we, cause my husband and I went through this together is we learned to be more present for each other or family, but also just to enjoy what's in front of us. Um, because you, you may have those days and you may not. So I think for me, um, that was kind of reinforced to kind of balance that a little bit for myself, maybe a little bit more than I was doing before, personally and professionally, but also striving that, you know, kind of that survivor feel like you can do this, you can get through it. One of my friends had sent me a text and he, you know, and the, the thing that stuck with me during the time I was going through it was, you know, he said, you know, tough times don't last, but tough people do. And I was like, you know, that's right. (laughs) Tough people do. And we're going to get through this. So I think it's those things that kind of force you to kind of like hold on to something that gives you that energy and that stimulation and just the energy to keep going on those days that are really, really difficult are some of the things I learned. Um, And I think just paying attention to your mental health during any type of crisis, if it's a physical crisis, a medical crisis, how that impacts you and being more present with that was something that I learned through that experience as well. What does crisis mean to you? the first thing that just comes to my mind is just the unexpected. And I guess that can be defined in a lot of ways, but I think, you know, when I look at my own personal crisis going through cancer, but also just sometimes families calling us, it's just like, we don't know what to do. This just started or this is happening. It's like, it just, it just is a complete unexpected change in your day to day, you know, Mm -hmm. of what you know and forces you into sometimes a space of unknown without answers, without safety. And then for some people without hope. Um, so I think for me, it it is about just this, like the way the world, it happens, you know, life happens is it shifts something so quickly that you're kind of left to figure it out, but it's, it's a hard moment to figure it out because it is, you don't know, you don't have the skills, you don't have the resources, you don't have the experience. So I feel from that unexpected moment of change in somebody's life is kind of how I would look at a crisis. Okay. 
So when you work in the crisis field, you can't help but try to develop some theories or some conjectures about why are people in crisis, specifically mm-hmm. in our community, mm-hmm. you know, like what's driving that or why are, you know, why, why does domestic violence continue to be um, an issue or why does sexual assault continue to be an issue? And I guess I want to give you the license to like free associate right now or just, um, just I, I'm really curious to hear your perspective of, you know, your community in Erie County or in mm-hmm. Buffalo, like what's missing in some of the lives of the people that end up turning to you for services? Like what, you know, what's, what, or what's contributing to their crisis? Mm-hmm. I, I really go back to trauma. Like what has happened to somebody that either they themselves didn't get the support or the knowledge or like how to manage a certain situation um, or just the trauma that maybe shut them down uh, in their lives of learning um, or or learning to have emotions for other people or even for themselves and caring for themselves. So I think I look at trauma a lot and how that influences a person and their behaviors and their decision-making. But I also think it's about just being informed. Like I think that we make assumptions that everybody has the same understandings that we do or were parented in a way that they learned how to do their own laundry or did be able to cook for themselves or like the basics, right? Like I think that we make a lot of assumptions that everybody knows all of this and they and for me it's about what don't they know. We kind of say around here sometimes too it's like people don't know what they don't know. <laughs> and I think that we have to help fill that gap and want to fill that gap for people to help them and be empowered. For me, it's, I look at it that way is like, what do they need? What, what's maybe missing for them? I'm fortunate to have the family and the upbringing I had. Not everybody has that. And even when we were going through, when I was going through cancer treatment, my husband and I would, we would go to my chemo appointments and my entire family was there. You know, I come from yeah. a big Ita- you know, Italian family. My parents were there, my brother. Not everybody has that, you know, and we would sit there and say, wow, like, how do they do this? Like, how are they getting through this day without somebody there to help them? So it's understanding that not everybody has what you have and you don't know what they've experienced. So you just have to, again, I think it circles back to how we started this conversation about empathy and compassion and, and also what can we give to other people that will help them build strength and empowerment to have something better for themselves. Those are some components that come to my mind when I think about that. I want to go in a different direction for a minute and ask about uh, specifically your domestic violence and uh, sexual assault and the PREA program that you mentioned. So I I do some work around uh, human trafficking, sitting on some committees and Mm -hmm. trying to understand, like maybe some could call it like a silent epidemic, but just something that's that's happening underground in a lot of our communities that we don't recognize. I wanted to get your thoughts on the impact that you think that um, male socialization has on domestic violence, sexual assault, trafficking, and things like that. One thing I learned in one of my counseling classes is that we we probably all have populations that we would have a hard time working with or a hard time supporting. You know, not that maybe we can do it from afar, but like if we had to work with them day in and day out, I don't know, maybe you would develop more empathy, but but also maybe it would just 
frustrate you more. And I think that the the perpetrators of abuse for some people can be that group, right, where they they have been the source of so much pain and trauma for their victims, and and uh, and yet it seems to me that if we don't address how men are being socialized and how they relate to women or how they relate to other men, um, that we might be missing um, this opportunity to affect real change in these areas of domestic violence and trafficking and sexual assault. And I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. What impact that might be having and, and uh, taking a, a prevention role in those spaces versus a, you know, a treatment or a response role? Early on in the work of doing the domestic violence work, I remember, I think I was struggled a little bit with like, is it learned behavior? Is it, is there something else going on? You know, and it gets down to some choices. And I think there's other components of why somebody might become a perpetrator of these, these particular issues. But we do have an opportunity, like you said, to try to prevent that from happening. It's how we you know, teach our relationships and healthy relationships and in really starting, you know, right from very young ages with our children about consent and understanding what that means in their language and kind of also what's choice. So I think for me, when I'm looking at, you know, perpetrators of violence like this, I, I'm always curious to what their experience was, who who were their role models, what did they see? Is this just a learn is this is all they know that they've continued in this path. If we can get sooner in lives of young men and, and young boys about relationships and how they also view their their female counterparts. I think that's another component of how how do people treat each other regardless of gender and kind of get into an understanding of respect and the basics of, you know, going back to the basics. I think for me, when I look at that, I think that that's where we have the impact from a prevention standpoint and also the willingness to be, say something when somebody says something or does something that is not okay. And also being willing to talk with people who are in um, an abusive relationship to tell them they don't, they, no one deserves that. And how can I help you? So I think it's, you know, I think sometimes with this particular, particular issue of if it's domestic violence or sexual violence, for us to have a true impact is us as a larger society is being comfortable going into that space of accountability for the behaviors that we're witnessing or hearing and telling our our young men and our young boys about healthy relationships, what that looks like, as well as our young women. Like everybody should have an understanding of what's okay in a relationship. And again, I think going back to my earlier comment, not everybody has that education. Not everybody is given that in their upbringing. So to have that true impact, I think we have to be comfortable talking about some real uncomfortable conversations and also holding people accountable to what they're saying, how they're treating each other to really kind of provide a more um, safer environment for for all of us. It's hard because you don't want to get into, (laughs) you know, you have to think about the space of somebody who thinks about perpetrating this type of violence against somebody else, but it's hard to get there because it's, how could somebody do that, Mm -hmm. you know? But that person doesn't think that way. So how do we get into that space that gives them a different way to have some empathy? Because a lot of people 
perpetrate don't have a, a way. I mean, this is this is part of the the behavior, and get them to understand their own actions if they've never been had that conversation with somebody about like how that made me feel or what you said hurt me or, you know, from when we're young children and, you know, playing together or, you know, learning kind of how to share and like the basics, like if we, if they don't have that, how do they know that it's not okay to do what they're doing unless they have somebody that helps teach them and guide them. And so I think from when we talk about prevention around this, this, this work, it is also really getting into the basics around consent and um, healthy relationships. But with that being said, it's also more of a bystander approach to holding people accountable when you're witnessing and seeing something that is abusive. Well, it sounds like the values of empathy and purpose have continued to have been a continuous thread in your life. And that's really encouraging to see, I think, especially for people who are starting their career and saying like, is this possible? Is it possible to put 20 or 30 years in and not get crispy? You <laughs> right, know? right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, well, uh, Jessica, thank you so much for being here with us today on the podcast. It's been a real Absolutely. treat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Jessica Pirro, Executive Director of Crisis Services. For more information, visit crisisservices.org. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or like our Facebook page. 